Hello. And welcome to Pop Tarts. Beam, 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 beam. And when she solved it, it said, I never stop loving you. World domination through organization. She just won the Pulitzer Prize. Just get ready to cry. I'm confident I am as terrified of Alabama as Alabama is of me. I'm going to die crushed for the weight of my books. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We are both editors at Bust Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. Today we have a very, very special guest. We are going to be talking to Catherine Burns, the powerhouse artistic director behind the storytelling phenomenon, The Moth. Now, I know that you probably know The Moth if you're listening to me right now in your ear holes. But just in case you don't, or in case you need a little bit of a reminder, since its launch in 1997, The Moth has presented literally thousands of true stories told live and without notes by both big-time writers and regular folks with a knack for engaging an audience. The Moth was founded by the novelist George Dawes Green in his New York living room, and the events quickly spread to larger venues throughout the city. Today, more than 500 Moth events are produced each year in more than 29 cities. They also run storytelling workshops for high school students and adults in underserved communities. And the Moth podcast is downloaded more than 50 million times a year. Oh, my God. There's also the Moth Radio Hour. It's broadcast on over 480 radio stations. There are three Moth books. Uh, The first is The Moth, 50 True Stories. There's also All These Wonders, True Stories About Facing the Unknown. And now the new book is Out, Occasional Magic, True Stories About Defying the Impossible. All three books were edited by Catherine Burns, we're so excited to have her here with us. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. Long, long, long time bus fan. And like I kind of am freaking out that I'm sitting in your office, but I'll try to be cool. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> it's a little wild in yeah. here. I love it. We're getting ready for a craft fair. Oh, yeah. Zero waste thing. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, things are, we are, are so happy to have you here with us. The Moth, as I just explained, is massive. It is a massive enterprise. It encapsulates so many things, books and performances and competitions and uh, out community outreach. Talk to us about when and how and why you got involved and what your main role is in that giant media empire. Okay, so I got involved originally in 2000. I moved to New York City and I was sort of a filmmaker who was a little bit burned out on it. And I was going through what I refer to now as my is that all there is phase. Uh-huh. When someone brought me to the moth. And at the time, it was, you know, it was cool. Like um, Pretty big name people were already doing it. But it was very underground. Um, as I recall, there was barely even an email list. Like you would receive a postcard in the mail that would be beautifully designed but inexpensively produced. And it would tell you that there was a show in like four days and you would go and have to just fight your way in like an animal. <laughs> and I walked in and fell madly in love with it because it was kind of the opposite of the film world. It was so simple. It was like one person on stage telling their story with just a simple spotlight and a mic. And I fell madly in love with it and started coming and started volunteering. Eventually told the story in one of our slams and it ended up in the very first Grand Slam, which was crazy. Whoa. And um, in 2000, the end of 2001, the Moth's first artistic and executive director quit. There were two employees, and I raised my hand and said, whose job is open now, and how do I apply? <laughs> and I became the producer, and then eventually the artistic director, which is what I do now. So I'm the artistic lead of the company, and uh-huh. so I'm responsible for ultimately the artistic quality of every single thing that leaves us and goes out into the world and making sure it's up to our standards and that it's authentic and, like, it's, like in line with all of our values. So I have a few questions about that. What are your values? What are the values that you are trying to uphold? I mean, well, one of them is authenticity, uh-huh. um, community. I'm trying to think. What are our, we have them official. There's actually five, and you think I would have them all in my head. But, of course, you asked me. I, mean, I swear to God, I turned 50, and it's like this <laughs> menopause. And I'm like, what? What's my middle name? I don't know. But, I mean, the biggest thing is, like, 
It needs to stay authentic, and it's all about real people telling their true stories. The role of the audience is huge. So even the books, the books are all created by taking the transcript and then lightly editing it in the hope of preserving the live voice. So it's also like preserving that idea of like a live community gathering I mean, just making sure everything stays true to that. Uh-huh. I know that there are many sort of echelons of moth stardom. Yeah. Like it starts <laughs> as like an open mic story slam. Then those winners go to a grand slam. And then you uh, curate more practiced evenings around a theme. Yes. And then there's also the radio show and the podcast and the books. How does one rise through the the ranks to become the moth superstar of their dreams. So there's two main ways if you just like want to walk in and get our attention. I mean, we act first of all, if you're anywhere near one of our open mic story slams, this is the absolute best way. They happen in 30 cities around the country and they're also in um, Australia and the UK. And you walk in, the theme is announced in advance. And you, if you have a story to tell, you put your name in the hat and the first 10 names are picked and you have five minutes to tell your story and then the stories are judged by the crowd. It's like kind of just loose fun with the judging. So often, you know, the story that gets the lowest score of the night is the one that when we listen back, we think is the best. So there's kind of like being great in the room, but then <laughs> we actually listen to every single story that comes Do out of you? that series, which is like five, 6,000 stories. It's a lot of Whoa. stories. You you don't have to come and tell a perfect story to get our attention. Like sometimes we'll, somebody will be like, my gosh, this person has an amazing voice. And if they just had a little help with structure. And so that's like, so if you have access to one of our slams, that's the best way. Um, but we also have a pitch line. Anyone can call and leave a two-minute version of a story you want to hear. <laughs> I love that. We listen to every single pitch. Wow. And a lot. So someone just says, I want to tell you a story about this. And they just tell you what it's about, but they don't. Yes. Tell you the story? Yes. They give us like the gist of it. This lovely older woman named Cynthia called and um, she told us a story about how she had had this crush on a boy like 65 years ago <gasps> in California. And um, he had like she'd been sort of bullied by these older boys at work and he was always really nice to her. And he ends up tracking her down. They would write these little puzzles for each other. And he... Send, and they would write them on paper towels. And so he sends her a whole packet. They're now, you know, he was in her, his 90s, she was in her 80s. Packet of paper towels. And the last one had a riddle she had to solve. And when she solved it, it said, I'd never stop loving you. Aww. And so she left it on our pitch line. <laughs> We're like, what? We called her back. <laughs> and um, she was amazing. And she ended up telling the story with us. And um, she eventually went and met him. And he proposed within two hours. And they got married. And we're together for like five, six years before he finally died in her arms. Oh, my God. Yeah. But, but these are the kind of pitches we get. I mean, then we also get like, you know, drunken frat boys who throw up while scuba diving. And we have to, you know, go through those. Yeah. But, um, but there are some real treasures. Like one of the women in the book who was like one of my favorite people from the pitch line is a Ben who told the story of like walking across Africa and trying to save her child. But, the, but you know, the funny thing is she has a harrowing story, but... Her story was actually quite funny. It's about arriving in the U.S. from Africa and having to find her way and trying to understand, like, she's put up an apartment building in Maine, I think, and she hears a buzzer and thinks it's a fire alarm, and they all run out of the street. Like, it's just, like, how confusing American culture is and trying to find her way here. Uh-huh. But she called our pitch line. You know, so we really do find some gems. How much of Moth's success is the quality of the story and how much is the charisma of the telling? I think you have to have one or the other, is what I would say. Like, if you want to tell a story about walking to the corner store and buying milk and maybe tripping, but nothing really happens, you better be really good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, you, read, you better be someone who's really talented. Because there are storytellers we have that can tell. Like, there was a story last year that was basically about taking a bite out of a slice of pizza. But, you know, he was, it was like a non-kosher pizza from someone who, you know, had mm. been orthodox. And so you get the whole background of what this pizza means. But it was still a very small story. But I think that when you have, if you have a really big story, an important part of my job is making sure that people, that there's room for someone who's nervous and has an incredible story to tell. But my almost get there and whisper it, like someone who's never right. hasn't been on stage since their high school graduation, and who's very nervous but who has something powerful to share. Mm-hmm. And our audience expects us to bring these people. It can't just be the comedians. I mean, we love our comedians. Um, and so when you get somebody up there, you know, the audience will just lean into them. And it's my, pa- my favorite part of the show is when that happens. Can you think of 
an example of someone who hit like that perfect sweet spot between them? Probably most of our greats do, right? Uh huh. Phyllis Baldwin is one of our retailers. We met her when we did our very first open mic night in the Bronx. We were we were worried to death no one was going to show up. She walks in. She's like an older grandmother. Uh huh. And somehow sort of cajoled into putting her name in the hat, and won the slam that night. And her story is about um, being a young girl, like in the seventies, early seventies in New York City. And going for a job interview, and um, and she's like nervous, and people just think she's not confident enough to do the job, and she's probably not going to get the job. And then she's actually at- attacked in the street by a mime. What? <laughs> I know. In this crazy scene, where I mean, the mime is just abusing women as they come back by basically, like at one point, there's a woman in a dress, and he pulls her dress over her head, <sighs> and the whole crowd is just laughing and going crazy. I mean, it's just wild. And Phyllis ends up rising up and realizing she has a can of mace and maybe I don't want to give it away, but Whoa. it's got like the great line, you know, kill the mime. You know, the Phyllis <laughs> says. Oh my but gosh. But she's someone who both like has a crazy story about you know, attacking a mime with a, running him away, like this really big guy. And she was a very small woman, but also she has major chops. And one of the great things is she ended up going out on the road to tell that story with us. I was there the very last time she told it. And it was such an honor because once we put a story on the radio, we stopped touring them. Oh, oh. So the, the radio is the grand finale. Yeah, yeah. For posterity. It's interesting. It's like we thought that when we first started touring that it would be like music where you go out to hear your band play your favorite song and that they would want to hear like all the hits. Oh, yeah. But we actually thought it wasn't true. But I already heard that one. We're like, really? So we had to figure that out. Mm. But it's very few people who do that many shows. Like It's more common to do one-off. Mm-hmm. But there are a handful of people for us every year who kind of rise and really become stars and end up telling their stories again and again. There's currently a story about a guy having a standoff with a bear, and we keep begging, like putting, pushing off the radio episode. It's supposed to air in <laughs> <laughs> because we're like, no, just read more, four more times for Monty with a bear. So yeah, <laughs> your time is coming, Monty. I know he knows that the writing your is days on the are wall. Numbered. I know it's always sad when we retire one, but then it's also joyful because it suddenly actually goes out to millions of people. Right. Yeah. And that's the day they become famous. Moth famous. Moth famous. Do they ever switch stories? Like tell one story and then... They do. Yeah. So our really great raconteurs will sometimes be able to come up with like... It's intense when you've had like one of the greatest hit stories. But there are some people who have told multiple amazing stories. Um, But I generally find that most people don't have that many stories that they want to be out on stage telling. Mm -hmm. You know, so it just sort of depends on the person. Not to be a negative Nancy, but... What kind of stories do you hate? The one thing that we will just like never and walk away from right now is white savior. Um, I'm, you know, a white person and went in and did some valiant deed. You know, we generally don't like stories where people are bragging about themselves. Mm. Moth listeners want to hear the story about the time you messed up. You know, it's like our missteps make sort of, that's what makes us interesting. Problems, you know, decisions you need to make. You know, these issues, these are the struggles in life. That's what we think makes interesting stories. And if you just want to get up and talk about how you're a great hero, it just unfortunately tends to be a little bit boring. Yeah. But especially if it's like, you know, the sort of white savior and I adopt, like, no. I mean, that's so great that you did that. But we are kind of done with those stories at the moth. It's also just tough. There's categories of stories that people have told so many stories about with us after so many years. And so we will always have those stories, but they have to be very unique at this point. Right. And so like some of those kind of, we used to say birth story, wedding story, you know, everyone's birth and wedding story is interesting to them and their close friends and family. But Mm. it really has to be like that. The tornado had to hit in the middle of your wedding. And then as a result, you became a wedding planner like for it to work. Right. It has to be pretty big usually. Um, but also like coming out stories, we've had so many, we'll have a thousand more, mm-hmm. but at this point you, there has to be some like thing that makes, that makes it a little bit different. Usually, um, stories about getting sick and then getting better. I mean, I know that sounds mm. so monstrous, but, but one of the things we always say is like, well, what was unique about it to you? Cause mm-hmm. until the person can really dig into what was so special for them about the experience. That's what's going to make a great story. And so we'll always have those stories. But in order to do them, you have to really dig, you have to dig a little deeper with those. Here at Bust, we've been writing 
stories that somehow explain the truth about women, tell the truth about women's lives for 25 years. Yes, you have. There are very few stories about the truth about women's lives that we have not heard. If you can surprise us. Oh my God. You just literally said that to somebody the other day. I cannot imagine. I cannot even imagine. Totally. If you can surprise us, you better believe you're going to be in Bust Magazine. Yeah. Because we've heard it all at this point. My husband's always, I run in and make my husband listen to us. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Uh uh Because he's like, oh my God, you're not going to believe this. Yeah. (laughs) You've mentioned, um, the authenticity being the key element. Yeah. There's also the spontaneity of performance that yeah. you really feel when you're at a live event or when you're listening to one of the audio presentations that you're making. How do you shape and mold your most promising storytellers for the big main stages while keeping that spontaneous energy alive? Do you have like a, a secret method or recipe for keeping that zhuzh <laughs> we have various ones but one of, so one of the misunderstandings a lot of people have is they think that if they practice it it's going to get stale and old and less interesting and they're better off being spontaneous but we think it's just the opposite mm. that the more you actually know the bones of your story the more you can get on stage comfortably like the more in your own skin you are the better you're going to be. And so if you're up there and basically know the, the stepping stones of your story, then you can suddenly relax. Then suddenly you're going to throw in some little lick that none of us have ever heard before. This is going to be the greatest moment in the whole thing. Because you won't lose your place. Right, because yeah. you know it. And you can bounce around and you can look up and you can feel the energy of the audience and have the confidence to do that because you don't have what we sometimes call head-in-the-desk drawer syndrome which means you're on stage talking in front of somebody, but you're not actually engaging with them. You're thinking of the sheet of paper that you have in your purse that outlines or mm-hmm. in the worst case writes out your whole story. Yeah. And then you refuse to connect with the audience. Um, like people will often ask me like what the number one quality of a great moth storyteller is. And it's not the ability to make someone laugh or be comfortable on stage. It's the willingness to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And you can do that better if you know where you're going. We love it when something spontaneous happens. But that usually doesn't come out of underpreparing. It comes out of being very prepared. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of our pieces of advice is if you there's a story that you told a thousand times to, to the point that it's gone stale for you. And there's some scientific studies that say that when you tell a story, your memory gets repeated by that telling you know, that so like you're, you you lose the original memory and the way you told it oh, kind of becomes the memory. Oh. I know there's some thinking about that, which is a little bit like, oh dear. So one of the pieces of advice we give it, like especially if it's one of my storytellers who's told a story a lot of times and then maybe for some reason the story's gone on the radio and it's retired, but they might come back out and do it again. We'll say, write down a sheet of paper, 20 things that happened that day that aren't in your story. And it's not mm. to add them in. It's to just viscerally kind of put yourself back in the situation. Oh. And not in the telling of the situation. And not in the telling of the situation. Like actually our former um, artistic director actually taught me that. Um, it had me do that. That's yeah, really very smart. Because then, then you're kind of back in it. Then all of a sudden, if you turn around and tell the story again, it'll suddenly feel really fresh. Some of the people that you've had on the show, as you mentioned before, are big fucking deals. <laughs> like yes. uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, Malcolm Gladwell. John Turturro, Molly Ringwald, Tig Notaro, these are all moth people. Yeah. Like, how do you go about preparing, like, a legit star with an A-H-H-H <laughs> for the moth as opposed to, you know, someone who came through the tip line? You know, it's ultimately the same process. And I think that the we have one of the advantages of us getting just a little bit more known is it in the old days, we'd be like, storytelling, what, for kids? It was, it was very hard. Even though I have to say from the very beginning, like, you know, George and Joey and Leah and that crew, they got some very big names. Like, George Plimpton was a regular, like, the pre-2000. You know, they, they really did have some big people. But um, as we've gotten a little bit bigger, what happens is the big stars who love what we do find us. And then they are generally really willing to give themselves over to the process. So it's gotten easier to work with the bigger name people as we've gone on. Because the ones that we do work with are really coming to it with an open heart are in a bigger way. Are you saying they literally and actually allow themselves to be directed? Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, I, my most recent, <laughs> of all the people you just listed, the most recent was Liz Gilbert. Uh-huh. And she was a dream. I mean, we got on the phone. I was like, I'll admit it now, I was very starstruck. It was uh-huh. like a little intense. And I had screwed up and forgot 
that I would be in LA. So it was six o'clock in the morning. So I had like coffee and bacon. That was it. Delivered to my room at 5 a.m. Oh my God. And took crazy notes and then sent her an outline. This is how I tend to work. I find it's easier for people to work off an outline that a stranger sent them of their story. Like it's easier to edit it than to, it can be overwhelming to try to do your own, even mm-hmm. if you're Elizabeth Gilbert. Right. Um, I mean, I'm sure she could have done the, a brilliant outline. She's a genius, but I just, I, <laughs> Yeah, this is what this is my process, and then ultimately, yeah. Then she got on the phone and told it to me because that's how we usually work and timed it. It was a little bit long. It's also trying to figure out exactly what the arc is and trying to pop that out so it's really clear, like who Liz is at the beginning, for instance, and who Liz is at the end. And then, yeah, she came. To, we do f- big group rehearsals for everyone who's going to be in the show. They come together in a small room, and they tell the story, their stories to each other and to our core artistic team. And um, she was so incredibly present in the rehearsal. And the night of the show, she was just like really, I mean, so warm and um, supportive. And we just adore her. I mean, so that's that's the, a recent one. But it was really, it was, it was just, it was one of my favorites. And I was so scared of being disappointed. But it was just the complete opposite. I love it when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the same thing with like John DeTuro is another one to bring. Bring. He. Um, it took me like 10 years to talk him into it. And then finally there was a story he thought he might want to tell. But it was something he had never talked about. Ooh. Ever. What was it? It was about um, the fact that his brother had spent his entire life in a mental hospital. Whoa. And you have mental illness. Is very, yes. But John, so when, when the first time we got on the phone, I was really grateful. He trusted me with the information, but there was no pressure to tell it. And we tried to talk through like what some of the scenes could be and like what some of the bigger moments. And he ended up telling me a story by the time we got off the phone about going to sort of take his brother out for the day in the hospital where he was with, with at the time she was still alive, John's mom. And um, it was the night of the big 2003 blackout. Oh, my God. So he's, like, out, and, like, there's no streets, lights, and he's got his brother who's, like, you know, high maintenance. I mean, I think that I think John would – apologies, John. If that, I don't think he would be offended by that. And it's just this crazy situation with him and his mom in the car and, da, 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 and trying to deal with it. And it became a frame of how to tell this story of what it means to have a member of your family who – is severely mentally ill and how to support them and just what that does to a family. It also became a story about original families, like our birth families and then our families we put together mm-hmm. um, as adults and the responsibility of one family to the other and how sometimes that's in, not exactly conflict, but that there, since there are decisions that have to get made around that. Because he's off with them, trying to, he has no idea what's happening with his wife and kids back in Brooklyn, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And do you, have you ever gotten really... Um surprising feedback after something particularly revelatory from from the audience or from listeners on the radio show we definitely have we get really beautiful emails from people and like since there can be crazy coincidence of things that happen someone told this really stunning story about um his fear of death and how he becomes what do you call it when you're jewish and when somebody dies you sit with the body overnight like they have right to, there's a name for it that's really pretty I'm jewish that I can't think and of. i should know the word my but hu- i just call it <laughs> sitting with the body overnight okay. <laughs> my husband's jewish oh my and i should be better but um so he ends up volunteering and sitting with this woman and um who he finds out had written for sesame street and Aww. he ends up singing a song to her it's like really beautiful and afterwards someone came up and said I know who that was, and I was her friend. Like, isn't that crazy? Whoa. Yeah, I don't think Leo would mind me telling this, but yeah, it was like totally because there were just enough details of who the woman was that her that a close friend of hers would be able to recognize it. Uh-huh. She's talked about this on the radio show, but Ophira Eisenberg, who's a comedian, told a really stunning story about being a little girl. She was five years old with her best friend, and of course, in like in the I think she wasn't actually in the way back of the station wagon. Her brother was, but they were in the car. And a teenager runs a light, hits the car, and ultimately her little best friend died. Oh. Wow. And, of course, the brother who was in the way back with no seatbelt was unharmed but and walked away. But, yeah, so the, in, our fear is very funny, so it's a mixture of, like, heartbreak and beauty. Um, the story is ultimately about, like, what sh- she went through as a child and then realizing as an adult, as a teenager, how her parents had protected her. And it's a really beautiful story of, like, becoming a young adult and suddenly seeing your parents as people and it being beautiful. But when the story aired, the little girl, Adrian's father, was oh. driving down the road in Canada and it came on the air and all of a sudden he heard Ophira telling a story about his little girl. And 
it was just, I think, very moving for him that somebody remembered his child who had died so young, and he ended up writing Ophira a letter, and it was just really beautiful to hear from him. Yeah. Wow. That was was very sad, but there's just a lot, there's a lot of kind of cool, crazy behind-the-scenes things that sometimes happen, and that's part of it, because that's also how the audience becomes a part of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the shows, Moth Storytellers sit in the audience. They don't go, there's not a green room, and we do that because the idea is that these are stories from the community, and that anyone in the audience could be on stage. Right. It's not just like an us and them, Mm -hmm. and that does create magic when they're forced to like sit there and listen to the other stories and be a part of it. it. It creates a different dynamic. So you've edited three books. You talked about this a little bit about crafting the stories and keeping the the sense of these true stories performed live without notes in a book. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about how you perform that magic trick? Because it, <laughs> it seems, you know, one would think intuitively that these are stories that are not meant for the page. Right. But somehow they make it there. Not only do they make it there, but... Am I correct that they're all New York Times bestsellers? Uh, the first one and the la- in the, the most recent. The first one and the third one. Yes. There's still time, number two. Yeah, I know. Actually, yeah, Tim Ferriss promoted number two recently, and it suddenly jumped to top 100 on Amazon. Like, Is it going to finally make? But no, it didn't. But um, <laughs> the power of Tim Ferriss. But um, for years and years, we didn't want to do a book because we didn't think it could be on the page. And, you know, we don't allow notes, so it just seemed counter to have a book. But then there was a literary agent who had been coming to them off for years and years, and he approached me and he said, what if you transcribed the stories and edited them as told and tried to really honor the way they were told, don't rewrite them? Because I think there were, in the past mm-hmm. there was a thought that you could really, work, you know, kind of, I would say overwork them and turn them into something maybe into something something literary. Very, yeah, very written. He's like, it should feel almost like the transcript of a one-person show, you know, that's yeah. like polished but not perfect. And like one of the things I did early on was you know, a lot, storytellers tend to change tenses within their story. So it's like something you don't notice if you're just listening. But right. they, a, like a common thing you would do is like do you start in the past tense and then at a really intense moment you switch into the present tense. Right. And it, it's like a zoom lens in film. It brings you into the room. Like there's a young woman in the book, Journey Jameson, who tells a story about saving a guy who'd been shot by a gun. She's like a teenager in Chicago. And she's talking in the past tense as she hears gunshots. And then all of a sudden the guy steps into the room and she just naturally switches into the present tense. Um, and it's just beautiful how people naturally do it. So of course, I think fair enough, our first editor was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm looking at you two, you're print people. Present tense. <laughs> I would come down tense. on it like a hammer. Absolutely. <laughs> totally. Like, it, not wrong. You wouldn't be wrong. Like, and I was like, so I tried to do it. And what we discovered is I was just editing the liveness right out of them. Mm-hmm. We have a rule that you can't switch t- tenses in a paragraph. Mm. And so you'll see a lot of the paragraphing actually is partly because of that. You know, oh. Sometimes there's like really small, short paragraphs. You know, it's because of that stuff like that. Yeah. But that was one of the things that really helped. We... When we when we leaned into that, and I have to just say credit to you know our publishers who led us, they they suddenly took on their own spark. They suddenly had a spark, and also here's the truth: is like we'll have like four to five hundred stories in between books told sometimes, and we're reading all of them. And sometimes our greatest hits, like the stories that have brought down houses across the country, will just fall flat on the page. Mm. And that's the truth. And so, I mean, we're only picking, we're picking 50 out of, maybe the last one was like the shortest period, but we were still read like over 300 stories. And that's how you know what role charisma played. Yeah. I was just thinking that. It's so true. And it's heartbreaking because some of our favorite people, and of course we want to put their stories in in a book and, you know, herald them and, you know, lift them up. But just sometimes they really fall flat. And so part of, I think, the magic of the books is that you're only reading one in five stories that have happened in, the time period and so you're really able to find the ones that truly work as written pieces not just oral pieces and a lot of stories it seems there'll be a story that didn't work that well on stage where they got a whisper and maybe it was weird and they or there could be a storyteller where they get really nervous and slow so far down mm, that it becomes yeah. almost excruciating this is one of the things that can go wrong is nerves or they talk so fast that you literally cannot understand them we've right. had that happen and then suddenly on the page no problem. <laughs> right, right. So the books have been an opportunity for some stories that maybe would have gotten lost in the past to have a new life. And that's been exciting. On a broader scale, what role do you think personal anecdotal storytelling plays today 
in the pop culture landscape. I know I feel like I'm consuming news all the time. And when I'm not consuming news, I'm watching The Daily Show or Colbert or Seth Meyers because I feel like American democracy is on fire. And (laughs) I am I am stressed about it and I want to hear people talking about it. But I really miss the the human stories of individual people in that frenzy. What what is the role of this kind of storytelling in our garbage fire of a world? I just feel like it's never been more important. Like to just stop and take first of all the respect it shows to take ten minutes out of your life and listen to another person. <laughs> yeah. I mean that's a lot of time these days. It mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the stories go to 15. <laughs> 15 whole minutes. 15 whole minutes, uncut, with no music. You know, they said it couldn't be done when we first started <laughs> with the radio show. I, I think people did want it, because in this world of cut up, cut up, cut up, and everything is so pro- heavily processed, to just have a story that's with you know very few bells and whistles, I think people were craving that. There is a way that stories can bring us into spaces that we might be too frightened to enter, if we were doing it like through a news program or like if we thought that somebody had an agenda coming at us, mm-hmm. if somebody can just tell a, a simple story from their experience, whatever that is, without trying to bring like that, without trying to be in a soapbox, but just tell you what their experience was, suddenly worlds open up. Uh, Catherine Burns, are you a feminist? Yes. Oh, God, yes. I just had a big fight with my stepsister about this, where she was trying to say she wasn't a feminist, but then she obviously is. Her teenage daughter was sitting there, so there's a lot at stake. Oh. oh, and what did were you able to convince her that she is one? Unfortunately, no, but I just feel like she was approaching it. I don't think she'll listen to this, but even if she did, she would forgive me. But she was kind of, there's like this weird thick-headed way that she was defining it. Mm-hmm. Like she somehow thought that if she was a feminist, that she she didn't think it was okay that she could have like a more traditional relationship like with her boyfriend and she tried to accuse me of not being a feminist when I revealed to her that my husband so does the driving even though I love to drive and I I literally cannot remember not knowing how to drive Mm -hmm. but that he does all the driving and uh, to the point that my son when he was three didn't realize I knew how to drive a car and she's like see see you're not a feminist it was like no being a feminist means I choose because I don't get car sick to sit in the car for nine hours and read two books while we're driving to Maine you know Mm -hmm. um like that's my choice but i mean is it being a feminist just like believing that women should are equal to men is there there that much beyond that that, why is this controversial it just makes me crazy it's mind-blowing how many people just i could spiral on this you guys might should we you can spiral (laughs) on it if you want look i mean i ask all of our guests this Frequently, I'm asked to define my terms when I really? ask it because sorry, that, a mean, lot of people think <laughs> a lot of things. I don't think I've heard ones where someone tries to argue with you about it. That's then interesting. You haven't listened to all of them. I haven't. Now, now we're talking about like a sort of gender fluid landscape so that yeah. the belief that all genders right. are created yeah. equal yes. and that uh, we are not being treated as such. We have never been treated as such in the whole history of humanity and we're still we're still not and so we are calling out instances in which we are not being treated equal and saying hey we should all be treated equal you know the majority of the moth staff is female i mean our senior staff has been entirely female until i'm so proud of ourselves it was like a big you know, reach for us two months ago, we hired a director of marketing who is a man. Um, <laughs> but up until that, <laughs> every single senior, like that whole top third of the masthead, it's all women. And it's been that way from the very beginning. Um, you know, George, our founder, you know, started the whole thing, but it, they immediately hired a woman. <laughs> the moth, uh, from a staff perspective, has been female from the very beginning. And we're proud of that. It's, it's unusual. I mean, like, even the public radio world is very male. Like, people mm-hmm. think of it as a soft, fuzzy, but it's quite male driven. I think there is a feeling of it, in public radio women wanting to kind of help support each other and you know because it really can be such a boys club mm-hmm. and which is hard so even these institutions that we cherish that we see in, in some ways as being feminine often they aren't yeah I mean, it's very tough do you feel like your personal feminism affects what gets promoted and uh glorified within the moth I think so. I mean, the storytellers, it was very, it was pretty male citric in the early days. I mean, there were some amazing stars that came out. Um, Carla Genre, Jesse Klein, you know, like some really wonderful people um, were involved pretty early on. Um, but it used to be like that sometimes there would only be one woman in the show. 
And so there was a huge push for us to course correct, and which of course meant just going out and finding all the women who would be completely amazing. And like everyone wanted that who was involved, you know, men, women, everybody in the moth. And so now we try very hard to make the shows be split 50 50. And of mm -hmm. course, it's true that like gender means so much more than male and female now. So there's also, we do a lot to support people, you know, who identify in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, we've also, we're also very aggressive about making sure that storytellers um, that who, who are not just white, like are frequently on our stage. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, I, I think that it can be a self-perpetuating thing where you can, if you have too many uh, instances of it not being diverse enough, which has happened in Bust Magazine's past, then people will think, oh, that's a white thing. Yep. That's not for me. When, yeah. And then when we're actively really pushing to go after um, a diverse cross-section of people in the magazine there's a it's an uphill battle to get those gatekeepers and those publicists yep. to think of your thing whether it be the moth or bust to not is not not a white thing yeah totally but don't give up because i i do feel like i will we, never give up i feel like we kind of push 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 over the mountain and now it feels much better um mm -hmm. our senior curatorial producer suzanne rust is african-american and she joined us. She was actually the first senior artistic staff hired, like from the outside. She came in from the magazine world. Yay! She's opened a lot of doors and awesome. you know, has like changed the, the face of what we're doing. What are your hopes and your dreams and your goals and your plans for the rest of 2019? We're hoping that we're going to finally write a how-to book. Ah, oh, seems like an obvious. This is a very. It's a kind of a feminist thing too, of, a, of us just feeling like we want to like step into the space. And it's been a real collective body of work not any one of us can claim it 100 percent of our lead directors at the moth you know on the main stage are women and so there's a chance to kind of put down on paper what we've learned over that the last this is how 20, you do this 25 thing. years yeah and our mm -hmm. big thing is always as we look through different media is just saying are there pockets of people who would love this and if we could put it in a slightly different form they'd find us uh -huh. mm -hmm. <sighs> just like the world right now feels so broken yes mm -hmm. and so I, I just think there's so many like hearts and minds that could be changed or maybe shift and like maybe have a little less fear about i think a lot of the problems in our country just as someone who grew up in alabama it's just like this fear of the nebulous other mm-hmm and it happens on both sides. And so if you can take that other and help make it human in yeah. some ways, that I'm right now is the mission. I'm as terrified of Alabama as <laughs> Alabama is of me. We are going to take the briefest of breaks. I'm so happy that you want to stay here with us, Catherine, because when we come back, we're going to ask you, and hopefully you will ask us, what, what you watching? Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be. And you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via WolfieVibesPublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Uh, essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted and led by women. Do you want to hear awkward sex stories told with no judgment? Hi guys, welcome back at Awkward Sex in the City. I do dabble with around the booty and the butthole. Okay, I like the dabble around the booty dab phrase. Dabbling, eating, whatever you want to do. We're all sexual people, so like everybody, you know, has their thing. And it was introduced to me years ago, and I was like, oh shit, this feels good, you know. And then, uh, do you secretly wish there was a show out there dedicated to studying bro culture? Hey everybody, welcome back to Sweet, a lady's guide to bro culture. One of, my, one of my favorite parts of the movie is that uh, Emily Ratajkowski has a crazy last name, but they still have to pronounce it every time. So it's a lot yes. of bros being like, oh, dude, Emily Ratajkowski, yeah. bro. <laughs> yeah, and they, oh, right. And even though the characters know her. What about a podcast for mental health and wellness that's hosted by two roller derby players? Welcome to Frau Pow, where your hosts, Auden Rags. I think it was by psychologists that they talk to people with anxiety and depression and that they tend to watch the same 
TV shows or movies over and over again. And it's like a self-soothing soothing action. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. During the break, we discovered that our guest, Catherine, is an accomplished fire dancer. You want to tell <laughs> us anything about that? Well, yeah, it's something that um, when I first moved to New York City in 2000, you know, there would be these crazy parties and like Dumbo and what are now like, you know, beautiful, very expensive lofts. But there would just be these like what, you know, huge warehouses and people would do fire dancing, you know, so what you see them see in, you know, tourism of Hawaii, it's like, you know, a staff, like a sort of a stick where both ends are burning and people are twirling it. Um, or fire poi where people have chains attached to their hands with balls of fire on the end. And I was just transfixed and fell in love with it. And then I went to Burning Man in 2002 and just there was fire art everywhere i think barely but i got in on the very end maybe (laughs) i loved it and was just so blown away and then the long story short is like one of my best friends who was i think very high at the time came up to me and said you see that we're gonna learn how to do that and like to this (laughs) day i think the only reason nathaniel said this to me is because he just knew that i was so type a that i would figure out how to do it and you did he wasn't wrong yeah and so my teacher later admitted to me that showed the least amount of aptitude of anyone she'd ever tried to teach but i stayed with and it was like the very early days of the moth and so it was just good to have something that I did that got me out of my head yeah and just forces you to be in your body did you burn yourself while you were learning you know not as much I've caught my hair on fire twice and I've set my pants legs twice while performing which is embarrassing but anyway they put you out you you know (laughs) you have to get fire safety very very important Mm -hmm. but yeah I ended up actually getting finding my stride and finding my own way of doing it and um, eventually ended up being sort of the head of fire for Burning Man for New York City for a handful of years. Look and at you, oh, fancy. Awesome. It was fun. And helping put together the show, there's like a big fire show there that's like the, the night that they burned the man. I don't know how much you know about Burning Man. Yeah, my man, friend makes, um, he does the art cars and made a big oh God, dragon that brings breathes fire. I don't know if it was <gasps> ever there when you were there. I'm sure it was. That sounds it was like Doyle. I love a fire breathing Ryan dragon car. Doyle. Yeah. Can I ask what your astrological sign is? I'm, I'm Aries. I knew it. Oh, I knew it. I should have just, I should have called it out because I, I too am an Aries. You are. And I, and I could see your. Well, I'm on the cusp of Pisces. And so my still, joke about so it is that I'm like, uh, I want it my way. If that's okay with you. Like if you're sure, <laughs> but I kind of really want it my way, but are you, is it okay? Like, so anyway, so I think but it's very annoying. World domination <laughs> through organization. Yes. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Cheers, darling. Cheers for the microphone. So, what you watching, Catherine? Oh, my God. Like, so much stuff. Um, so, on the higher end, um, I'm, like, obsessed again with The Handmaid's Tale. Me, too. Um, but we, so, we finally got, at the beginning of season two was just so grim, and I was like, Very I don't good. know. I couldn't make it past that. But I, we managed to push. I was really, like, I almost it's quit. worth it. But it was worth it, because it suddenly got totally, insanely brilliant again, and I just love Elizabeth Moss and all of them, and it gets so complex. And I'm totally loving that because I'm trying to catch up to where everyone's at. Like, we're mm-hmm. not that far now. We probably have just a few weeks of if we're, if we focus. I think I'm two weeks behind. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely like still in season two. So I think we have oh. five more episodes and then we'll jump into the new. But yeah, so I totally love that. A, a short film I've become obsessed with recently. It's like, I think it came out a year ago or something. It was called The World of Tomorrow. Do you guys know this? No. Oh. It's a little short. It's actually on, I think it's Vimo. Is how you say that? I'm oh, so, Vimeo. Vimeo. I always say Vimo too. Vimeo. Vimeo. Okay. Um, but it's this beautiful short, um, that's, it's animation, um, and it's where a woman from the future, like, it was like zaps, sort of an outer space thing, a little four-year-old girl to her and explains that she, that in the lifetime of this little girl, they'll learn to clone. And she's like the third or fourth generation of Emily. And she's brought her back to give her information because the world where she currently is, it's, is having problems as if she can explain to Emily, and then it could say, and it, but it's really just a stunning um, 
it's really just a little short film. It's about how to live. And it's got lines like I'm trying to think. I keep some of them on my phone, but it's oh, like that's so cute. Um, yeah, I was I watched it and then finally just bought it so I could essentially send it to all my friends. That's so cute. So I'm really into that. Um, yeah, and then like on the other side, I'm I'm just totally obsessed with Outlander, and I just I bought all the books. Mm-hmm. Like I'm almost through with the series, and so now I have to read the books because I just need me, you know, some. Scottish, you know, <laughs> crazy, r- running around, the sexy guys in the far. Anyway, I just love it. Sexy so, yeah. Scottish <laughs> running around. Yeah. I just read an amazing book that was really special to me. It was called Furious Hours by Casey Kep. I think, I hope I'm saying your name right, Casey. Um, but it's this crazy, it's a book about Harper Lee going to the small town in Alabama in the 1970s to cover this crazy murder trial. And there's a question of like whether she actually wrote a book about it and it disappeared and what happened. And that, that is actually my hometown. And I was, and I was eight years old at the time and like, remember it. And so all the characters in the book, like there's a newspaper reporter who works at the newspaper where I was the intern when I was a senior year. And like, you know, there's a, the, there's the, the guy, there was a whole series of murders where this lawyer represented this guy who was like, it seemed just, it seemed obvious, allegedly took out insurance policies on various family members and then they would just sort of die in mysterious ways. And he re- represented him four times. And then I think it was the fifth time at the funeral of one of these people, someone just pulled out a gun and shot the guy in cold blood, just boom. And then the lawyer ended up representing that guy and defending him against having just killed his, his like, other client. client. Yeah. Whoa. I feel like it... It is the book that somehow Harper Lee could not write, and I think it's a masterpiece. Because Harper Lee is the fucking best. She I want to know like what she was obsessed with. Definitely, totally. Yeah, she's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I wrote in the in the entry in the intro to the Moss first book about my mother actually invited her over for lunch when I was a little girl and I had lunch with her. Wow. You did not. I swear to God, it's crazy. I wish I remembered it better. I don't <gasps> remember it that well. But the it, it, I, the reason I wrote about it was because there was a, something very mothy about it because. Basically, then I turned 13 and finally read To Kill a Mockingbird and became, you know, an insufferable bratty teen. And I was like, yeah, Mama, you just invited Harper Lee over you know, to the house, <laughs> didn't you? Know? She just won the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> and my mother was like, okay, surly teen. Um, no, but my mother was like, well, I don't know about that. But she was new in town and I was just being neighborly and you got to get to know your neighbors. And that's a, sort of a oh. very mothy thing. Wow. So I feel like mom, my mama got that back, you know, before the moth was ever even a that's thing. That's so special that's that she was at your home. home. I know, it's kind of insane. Yeah. As yeah. someone who struggles with writer's block, I... Yeah, I think about her a lot. <laughs> totally. What are you guys listening to and watching and reading? Callie, what you watching? Oh, uh, let's see. Let's see. Pose. Oh, Pose. that's next on my list. Category oh, is next. the best show ever. <laughs> oh, my God. My first note is, oh, my God. Um, This season is mind-blowing. Cried a lot on the first, uh, first episode. Billy Porter is the best. Um... So it's taking a place in the 90s now with, with the Madonna release of Vogue. And it jumps from 1987 to now. And it's just heartbreaking how many people died in that I know. span of time. It's astonishing. Just get ready to cry. My luscious research assistant and I just watched, I think it was uh, episode three of the new season. And we were both just staring into each other's eyes like, that was so amazing. Oh my that God, I can't was wait. amazing. And... I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but I would tell you as soon as I saw the plot unfolding of that episode, I was like, this is real. This is a real thing. I read about this and they actually reenact something from the real life of someone from Paris's burning. Oh, wow. man. Yes. They're keeping it so legit to, to history. It's, it's too legit to quit. It's too legit. And it's oof. what else are you oof. watching? Wig, which was uh, it's on HBO documentary about Wigstock. Nice. Mm. Which uh, was a. Drag event here in New York, like I, I don't know when it started years ago, and then it ended. Seems like six or seven years ago. I went to like yeah, I went to the last last few. Yeah, but God bless Lady Bunny. Well, and then there's this performer called Charlene Incarnate, and she's one of the new school. Oh, and she did a performance. She's trans, and she has top surgery, and was topless in the performance and then ripped her uh, bottoms off and pulled full peen out. It was amazing. And then I saw this performance from Lee Bowery from back in the day. That's old school. Where she had a person, like a girl underneath her 
outfit the whole time and then birthed her covered in blood <laughs> oh my god that sounds like something you would it, do I, yes camilla was like this is inspo this is your inspo i was like i didn't even know it but um claws are you watching the new claws i am not up on the new claws it's karuchi tran it's they all work at a nail salon and there's murder about <laughs> I'll tell you that <laughs> they're members of the Dixie Mafia, basically. Oh, and nice! The nail salon is the is a front, but they're also really into nails. Okay. And Stranger Things season oh. three. Stranger Things is back. They're teens. There's this character, new character called Erica. She is the best thing, the f- best one liners. She does it all for the ice cream. It is amazing. What does she do for a Klondike bar? Well. I can't give you it can't away. Tell me. It's really good. It's disgusting in terms of New York City subway life. Ugh, if it's disgusting, <laughs> then I'm sure it came right out of the New York City subway. <laughs> what are you watching? I'm so glad you asked. The, my favorite thing that I've been watching since last we spoke is the new Aquafina movie, The Farewell. Oh my God, it's so good. Um, I, I'm going to pause right here and let the good people of the world know that Aquafina is currently on the brand new issue of Bust Magazine. Oh, on and Billy now. Porter is on the inside. And Billy Porter is on the inside. Amazing. Um, so that's the July, August summer issue. And Aquafina is on the cover and inside talking all about this film, The Farewell. Everybody knows that she's hilarious. She's like a joke rapper. Her her song My Vag has an amazing video. But this is the She series. was on our podcast. She was the very first celebrity to be on our podcast. Nice. And now she's in this big movie called The Farewell. It was written and directed by Lulu Wang, who first debuted this story on public radio. Um, she was, I believe, on This American Life, and she was talking about a situation where she she is Chinese, raised in America, and her grandmother back in China was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and the the tradition in China is not to tell someone when they have a terminal illness. Like, the family closed ranks and decided to tell her that the doctor's reports came back and she was fine. But then they staged this whole family wedding so that everyone would have an excuse to go to China and all be with her to this say is goodbye. This so terrifying to me. And also, I would then be terrified. Anytime an event happened, I'd be like, that's it, I'm dying. They've, everybody's yep. here. Right. <laughs> it's go time. But it's a, it's a cultural difference between America and China, how they, it was explained in the movie that in China, the family wants to bear the burden of the impending death for the person but who is But wouldn't the other person just be scared that they were going to die every time an event happened. I don't know. That's not how it played out. Aquafina does an unbelievable job as this um, girl raised in America who goes back to with her whole family to be around her grandmother for this family wedding when everybody there knows that she's dying except for the person who's actually dying. Very subtle, very moving, very, very funny. And um, the part that I connected with the most is like, even though there's all these broader themes going on, the true heart of the story is about a girl who really fucking loves her grandma. Aww. And when I wouldn't, I would not be working at bus today if it wasn't for my grandpa who let me come and live with him in Yonkers while I was um, interning for bust for years because I would not leave until they gave me a job. <laughs> and my grandpa <laughs> let me live with him that whole time. Aww. And I loved him so, I mean, I continue to love him forever, but he is no longer with us. And so mm. I felt all the feels and cried, clutched, busts uh sex files editor jenny miller to me during the screening and we both <laughs> cried and cried um my luscious research assistant logan uh discovered that on the roku channel if you have a roku it has its own channel and um this week the original 1976 premiere season of charlie's angels popped up on there <laughs> oh, and man. i have so many complicated feelings about it like if you have not seen the original Charlie's Angels, a lot of people have seen like the movies and stuff, but the premise is pretty actually surprisingly feminist for the time. It, as right. I said, it came out in 76. The premise is that these three women who happen to be stunningly gorgeous model ladies um, all graduate from the L.A. Police Academy and they're very, very good at doing police things. However, because they're women, one is assigned desk duty, one is given the job of being a meter maid, and one is giving the job of being a crossing guard. 
solely because of their gender and they are bored at their jobs. And so this dude, Charles Townsend from the Charles Townsend private detective agency, AKA Charlie, the titular Charlie of Charlie's angels lures them away from cop life to be PIs for his private detective agency. And they never actually see him. He just uh, like sort of lasciviously uh, tells them what to do through a speakerphone. Um, and so they happen to have the most amazing hair in the world. We're talking about Kate Jackson. We're talking about Farrah Fawcett. We're talking about Jacqueline Smith, the height of mid seventies glamour. You do yes. not get more glamorous than these three. And they're Miss Clairol like blowouts cannot be snatched. <laughs> they're unsnatchable. They're the, they're the greatest hair hairdos of all time. And they jiggle through the streets of Los Angeles, like solving crimes. And, um, it's just very difficult to parse because like the, the, just like the opening few seconds of it is the voice of Charlie being like, once upon a time, there were three <laughs> little girls who went to the police academy. Like, they're not fucking little girls. They're grown-ass women and they're cops. And show them some goddamn respect. <laughs> but at the same time, he did rescue them from the lives of mediocrity and is actually giving them the responsibility that they want and crave. They get to run through the streets with guns drawn. Mm -hmm. And so it's confusing. Obviously, everything is set. They have all these little special outfits that make their boobs jiggle and that make their hair blow in the breeze while they're fighting crime, which <laughs> yeah. is all for the male gaze. I'm seeing it. I'm watching it happen. Like, how come it has to be Farrah Fawcett fighting crime? Like, why can't it be Shirley Hemphill fighting crime? But I still love it. Am I a <laughs> feminist? Yes. Is there a conflict? Yes. Am I going to keep watching it? Yes. Well, Wonder Woman was hot. I mean, it's, yes. yes. I'll tolerate it. <laughs> There's a lot there. If you've never seen the original Charlie's Angels, I'm going to say. I mean, say. I've seen the original show, but not, I don't think I ever saw the first, first episode. Right. It, the first season is before Farrah Fawcett was like, I'm a movie star. Peace out. It's, this show made her a star. Um, on Amazon Prime, they're streaming Prom Night right now. The original Prom Night came out in 1980. The horror movie? Yes. It's a horror movie, and it was a knockoff of Carrie. Four years after right. Carrie came out and was a hit, there was all kinds of, like, some shit goes down at prom movies that were trying to get those Carrie bucks. Jamie Lee Curtis, in her third movie, she's, like, at her height of her scream queen powers. The premise is there's this, the senior prom is happening, and this masked killer is stalking all of these teens because they were responsible for the accidental death of one of their classmates six years prior when they were just little kids. But of course, it's one of these high school movies where everyone looks like they're in their mid thirties. Of course. <laughs> and, and it's like, are you a teacher? Are you a student? Are you a, are you a narc? What are you? Um, but it's really good. And like not all knockoffs of popular movies are good, but this one is very satisfying and it's female centric. It's all about Jamie Lee. So I recommend it. And that is what I've been watching. Spectacular. Thank you so much for coming and being our guest. I have loved it. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> and thank you, of course, to our producers, Kate Moldenauer and Jesse Karen at More Banana Productions for making us sound so nice and profesh. Of course, our luscious audio engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <laughs> and... To our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems. You cannot find Callie on Twitter. Don't even try. No, no, no. What about you? Can we find you on the social meds? You sure can. You can find me on Facebook, which I admit movies at this point a little bit lame. But I've definitely, I've recently started to very much lean into Instagram. Okay. So I'm trying to up my Instagram game. Mm -hmm. But you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at BurnsyNY. BurnsyNY. <laughs> and, uh... You can email both of us. I'm at emilyrems at bus.com. Calliewbus.com. And I actually want you to write those email addresses down this time, and I'll tell you why, people. I'm tired of making little jokes at the end of every episode about um, how much we need you to rate and review this podcast. You know that we need you to do it. We tell you every episode, and yet 
I can see how many thousands of you are listening. And I can tell you that 99% <laughs> of you are not reading and reviewing. <laughs> I'm going to sweeten the deal. How's that? Here's what I'm going to tell you, people. If you rate and give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts and then email me or Callie, I'm once again at emilyrems at bus.com. Callie W at bus.com. And tell us what your username is because there's like the username that goes with the review. If we like your review <laughs> and we're like, oh, that was such a nice thing to say about us. We're going to give you a free subscription to Bust Magazine. How's that? That's a whole year of like the greatest magazine of all time. Aquafina, Billy Porter. Yeah. They're all in there. They're all in there. Um, we have that power to make Bust Magazine arrive at your house. And all you need to do <laughs> is give us a glowing review. We're going to look at the reviews. We're going to be like, oh, my God, that was the best one. We loved that one. And that person is going to get a free subscription to Bust Magazine. All you have to do is email us and tell us to, the, hey, this one was mine. And that's how we'll know it was you. And we'll just get back to you and be like, here's a here's a subscription. Thank you very much. Bam. Do it. You won't regret it. Until next time. Mwah.